Here's a question. Um, Tim Alcoholic. What are your thoughts on a group using group funds to subsidize group activities or subsidizing or paying for attendance at local conferences? Um, in AA in Great Britain, let's do the second question first. If you do service and you are out of pocket, you are paid for all of your out of pocket expenses. Very basic principle. Uh, if you don't want the expenses, you take them and go and pop them back in the AA pot somewhere. But it distorts the financial uh, position of the intergroup, the region, the whatever it is, if someone is not taking the expenses that are due. Because let's say you've got a delegate going somewhere and says, don't worry, I can pay for the gas. It, it's fine. You do a budget. It's great. For three years, you're meeting your budget. The information that you send onto the groups about how much your region needs to fund its delegates is completely distorted. Someone comes along that can't pay for the petrol, that can't pay for their own hotel, suddenly your budget is inflated and you don't have the money there or the groups have got a, 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 the wrong impression of, about how much AA actually costs. So one thing I was going to mention about my group and finances is that we calculate what proportion of... Uh, AA, we're responsible for how many groups there are in Great Britain, how much we need to be generating to put into the AA service structure, so that when we say we need X pounds a week, that includes the, the rent and all of the costs of the group itself, but it also includes a whacking contribution to the service structure. Then people really know how much the deal costs and adjust their payments each week into the pot to, to, to compensate for that. Uh, we are very, very hesitant to give funds for social events or things like that. We don't have birthday cakes. We keep the tea and coffee and, and, and refreshments pretty. Um, it's not minimal, but we, do, we don't go crazy with that, with that. We want the money to be going into the service structure in order to fund public information activity. I'll give you an example. Uh, London Region North, which I'm on the board of because I'm a delegate from London Region North to the conference, is doing an advertising campaign where on 600,000 mobile phones in London over a two-day period, a little uh, banner is going to come up with information about AA. So 600,000 people are going to get a banner flash up on their phone about AA. We would rather that we contribute to funding that kind of thing, or radio slots about AA, or posters on the London Underground, than making sure that, you know, uh, Jennifer and Andrew have a birthday cake. If, if someone wants Jennifer and Andrew to have a birthday cake because they're, you know, 37 years sober, or 18 months, or, you know, 14 and a half months sober, whatever the milestone is, someone in the group can go and buy that. That's not what our group funds are for. Our group funds are for carrying the AA message. Um, I'm going to do some, a little bit more on the groups, and then I'm going to go to some other things. Um, tradition 9, subcommittees. If we've got some complex stuff going on that's going to require input from a bunch of people, we form a subcommittee to do it. We have a chair of that subcommittee, and we just let them run it, and then they get to report back to the group. 
An example is public information activity. Yes, public information activity happens at intergroup level, at regional level, at national level, but we also do it at group level. So we have walkabouts, we, 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 take low, we fill bags with AA literature, we go into pharmacies, we go into doctors, we tell a whole load of people about AA. We do this on a regular basis and it's a very organized practice. We've got good relationships with all sorts of organizations locally. So just because there is an AA service structure, this idea that you, you haven't delegated all authority and responsibilities to the service structure, you delegate something, but you still retain responsibility for what is in your immediate orbit. And most groups don't. They say this is a service structure, they do public information, we just meet once a week and talk about ourselves. Now, if you want to do that, that's fine, but at least go and put posters in the local doctor, doctor's surgery as well, like in between talking about yourselves. Um, what else? We don't like controversy. Um, there are members of my group who are communists, there are members of my group who are anarchists, there are members who are, uh, who are also members of Extin Extinction Rebellion and get arrested on a regular basis, and there are people who are members of far-right parties. Uh, by tradition, we don't discuss politics at fellowship. We don't even, a couple of people try, and it's fine, that they're, they're allowed to. Uh, we actually had a group conscience where we said, shall we ban the discussion of politics at fellowship? And we can't because it's outside the group business. If someone tried to do it in the group meeting, there would be a problem. We can't ban it. But people are now really sensitive, sensitive to the fact that lots of people are really, well, I hate to use the word, but triggered by it. It just brings in a sort of poisonous undertone to what should be a pleasant meeting after the meeting over dinner. And just as a courtesy, people will not touch the subject, or if they do, they'll go off to one side, have a quiet private conversation about whatever the issue is. We, we don't want other stuff to be brought in. What else? Um, I've talked about Tradition 11. Um, and, and the principle of attraction, not promotion. When we run around telling people about AA, it's so that we're Alcoholics Anonymous, not Alcoholics Invisible. To attract people, you've got to be visible. If you're invisible, you can't attract anyone. It's not hide and seek. <laughs> what attraction, not promotion means, doesn't mean you don't advertise. It means you avoid sensational advertising, which means you don't make extravagant claims. You don't play yourself off against other organizations, other groups. But simply saying, we're here, we have a solution, it might work. That's not promotion, that's attraction, because it's, it's simple, unsensational visibility. What else? Um, I've talked about concept one in the group. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go straight on to the, the, the concepts. Right, so I've been going to London Region North in various capacities. Uh, I've been the secretary, I've been the registrar, I've been a conference delegate. I'm, I've done all sorts of things for about 17 years. And at a couple of, two or three of the meetings a year, we invite all the GSRs along as well to be part of the general decision-making process. It's a little bit like conference and uh, the trustee. So the conference represents AA as a whole. 
and then some of the conference members are trustees and they meet as a board throughout the rest of the year. And London Region North is like that as well. We have like two or three times a year a conference where all the, GSR, all the GSRs come, all the officers there, all the delegates are there. That's where we discuss matters of general policy and finance and then all of the minutiae, all of the, the, the grunt work is done by the officers throughout the year. But at these gatherings, most of the GSRs have no idea what the concepts are. They don't know a thing about them. And, some, and then some, some fool reads the concepts in a monotone voice at the beginning of the meeting. No, that does not help. Yeah, you need to do it. I mean, it, it kind of just has to be done. But it will not explain to people why this, why this meeting is even happening. Why is there a conference? Why, is, why do we have regions? Why do we have intergroups? Why do we have a board? It won't explain how each of these individual things relate to each other. What I'm going to try and do in a, about f uh, over the course of five to ten minutes is to try and give you an overview of the whole AA structure covering all of the 12 concepts. It might work, it might not. I might lose you, don't worry, it's on tape. <laughs> right. <laughs> Here goes, and you can't rehearse this sort of thing, and you can't do it off notes, otherwise it just dribbles off. So who's in charge of AA in Great Britain? It is all of the members of AA in Great Britain. In every city, in every village, up and down the country, they are in charge. Now, as we said earlier, behind that is, that is each individual mind. That mind is connected to the higher power. So there's one unified consciousness above the whole thing. That consciousness is coming through each individual member's conscience. The consciousness is what is ultimately there, but a consciousness has to have a voice. It's like radio waves all around us, but you have to have a receiver for the radio wave to come down from whatever realm it exists in. I know so little about physics, but I do know you need a radio. You can't just tap into the radio waves. You need a receiver. You tune it in, to a particular channel, and the program comes through. So you've got this ultimate consciousness, which is the higher power, being channeled through the individual consciences of the people in AA who are waking up out of the lethargy of alcoholism and realizing they're on the planet. Consciousness and conscience. Now, at the other end of the chain, a request comes into the AA office uh, we'd like a poster to put up for soldiers in barracks up and down the United Kingdom uh, to tell them that if they have PTSD and alcoholism, we can't solve the PTSD, but maybe AA can help with the alcoholism side of things. They wanted posters directly aimed at people who are using alcohol to medicate their PTSD. Now, if you want to get that poster made, you cannot go to all of the individual members in every hamlet and village and town and city throughout the country. You've got to have a system of channeling that consciousness through the individual consciences 
all the way through to the person, to the mug who you've asked to design this poster. If ever you're asked to design a poster for AA as a whole, it's a poison chalice. You have to, you have to take up the gauntlet, but boy, you're going to be in the firing line. But you have God, so it's fine. But, you know, it's not for the faint-hearted. I know I've done it. You know, this is not, this is not theory. I had to live that one. So you say, right, so there has to be a decision-making body for Alcoholics Anonymous in Great Britain. And a decision-making body, the conference, is just like the group conscience uh, of my home group. So you need a system of going from the group to the, to the conference. If you've got a tiny fellowship, each group will send a member to the conference. If you've got 4,500 groups, as there are in Great Britain, you can't easily fund a conference with 4,500 people. So there's a structure of groups and intergroups and regions, and gradually delegates are sent from the group to the intergroup, from the intergroup to the region, from the region to the conference. And we have 96, I think, 94 um, conference delegates from the regions in Great Britain. And at each level, you have exactly the same process going on. So in my home group, we, we will discuss a number of questions affecting AA as a whole once a year, the so-called questions for conference. These questions get discussed, and the GSR is listening very carefully and distilling all of the voices heard into a set of ideas which represent what the group believes. And imagine a, a little vial of these ideas, like a little pot of these ideas, and all the GSRs come together, and they all take their pots and pour them into a new pot, and then it gets distilled down again. And this message gradually gets distilled until the conference meets, the conference discusses it. Here's the voices collected from all through Great Britain, and it comes up with a recommendation. We would like the board to do X, Y, and Z. One example of what the board has been asked to do is to come up with a document representing the best experience throughout AA in Great Britain about how we safeguard vulnerable people in AA. Now, this chain all the way through, it's the individual person listening to their conscience, expressing that conscience through their voice in the group conscience meeting, and then a representative gathers all of that, takes it to the next level. When I go to an intergroup, the intergroup is a spiritual entity. The region is a spiritual entity. I form a singleness, a oneness with the other people there. When I go as a GSR to the next level down through the structure, um, there's a, a, a curious balance. I'm not just carrying the votes. I'm taking what I've heard but adding it to everything else that I'm hearing from the other groups, from the other intergroups, from the other regions, at conference, from throughout the whole country, and it all gets poured into a single pot. And I become part of that. And as a conference delegate, sometimes I hear experiences from other regions, and I end up voting differently than what my region wanted me to do because I've heard other voices. Maybe there are other facts that I wasn't aware of that they weren't aware of. Maybe there are practical or operational difficulties. 
And so to cover the first three concepts, concept one suggests that there is this ultimate consciousness out there in the fellowship. Concept two says you need to channel that through specific voices who come together to make decisions. And that process of delegating authority and responsibility, which must always go together, that process of uh, uh, ultimate authority through to delegated authority goes all the way through. So the conference delegates to the trustees, the trustees delegate to the subcommittees. All the way, it's exactly the same process all the way through. But at each level, when I'm delegated something to do, I'm not a mindless automaton. I'm what the big book describes as an intelligent agent of God's ever-advancing creation. So there's a delicate balance there. I've got to listen to everything that people in my home group have said as a GSR. I have to listen to what they've said, but I still get to use my brain. But I have to report back and be accountable for the decision that I make and be comfortable with being replaced if they really don't like it. So this is, this is we've talked a little, about, little bit about concept three. Concept six is about a split between ultimate authority and active, chief initiative and active responsibility. So the conference, which meets once a year, all the delegates, that's responsible for AA in Great Britain, but it meets once a year. It has to delegate the operational decisions to the trustees who act all throughout the year. And there's a, so that's how the responsibility is split. Decision-making in one place, big highfalutin stuff, policy, finance, minutiae, detail, implementation, project management, different level. In my group, you've got the group conscience for the big decisions, and then you've got the business meeting for, for the implementation. Uh, in the structure of AA in Great Britain, you've got the conference for the big decisions, you've got the trustees for the details and for the implementation. So that's how the responsibility is split between the two and how the authority is, is split is really interesting to me. So the trustees of AA in Great Britain, they are the trustees of a charity. They are bound by charity law. And when push comes to shove, they have to obey the law, whatever is told to them by the conference. The trustees know all of the legal minutiae. They know all of the ramifications of what will happen throughout the whole fellowship. They have information the conference doesn't have. So sometimes what they do is going to differ from what conference asks them to do. They are not mindless automata. We're trusting them to be the active intelligence throughout the course of the year. But there are a couple of things which will hold that in check. The first one is for the trustees to operate, they need money. That money has to come from the fellowship. They have no other source of income because they've said we will not accept any income from outside sources. So that they are dependent on the fellowship. If they go too far away from what the fellowship wants, the fellowship can turn off the tap. And I've experienced a number of times where intergroups or regions in the UK have misbehaved, gone against the group conscience, and the tap has been turned off, and they're hamstrung. There's nothing they can do. But there is always also a traditional authority in there as well. So the trustees, they want to respect what the fellowship of AA as a whole suggests, because... When you've got a traditional authority, 
my sponsor is the traditional authority in my life. There is no legal authority. I'm legally responsible for every decision that I make because if I get su it's me that gets sued, not him that gets sued. I'm legally responsible. But by tradition, I grant him the authority to override my best thinking because I trust him. The trustees trust the fellowship. They may not like it, but they trust it. So there's a delicate balance there. So that's how authority is split. And then the board itself, the board, they're volunteers. They're not paid. They cannot be there the whole time. So they have subcommittees which, which comprise AA-serving members like myself on the Armed Services Subcommittee, designing posters, doing presentations at national level to all sorts of Ministry of Defense, that sort of thing. And then they have service corporations to do the literature and all of the stuff which needs to be done, all the telephone offices on a daily basis. So you've got delegation going all the way through from the top, which is the higher power, through the groups, intergroups, regions, conference, trustees, subcommittees, corporations. The corporations delegate again to directors and uh, executives and staffs and external consultants. So that anyone in the structure has one point uh, to go to for this is who I'm getting my suggestions from. This is who I'm getting my orders from. But it's not orders like in the army. It's not the governmental model. It's the corporate model where you're allowing creativity in each of those roles. Um, what else do we need to know about the concepts? Um, let me just refer to my notes. I was talking to someone in the break about how uh, it seems to be the same in America as it is, as it is in Great Britain. Uh, and I know this won't be a problem here, but maybe, maybe this will help. In Great Britain, typically, when there's a vacancy, if someone puts up their hand, they've got the job. <laughs> and then we're surprised when it's a complete disaster. Um, what concept... Uh, nine, what was it? Sorry, concept eleven talks about is being really careful about who you appoint to each role. So, London Region North operates pretty functionally. When someone wants a role, they have to do a little AA curriculum vitae, a little resume of all the service they've done. They're going to get asked, "What's your experience of the traditions?" What's your experience of the concepts? Are you being sponsored in any of this stuff? Are there any special skills you can bring to this task? You don't want someone to be the secretary of the region if they cannot type, or if they can't hit deadlines, if they can't use email effectively. It's about finding the best person for the job. Yes, the person benefits, but the job is, needs to be done for the purposes of the fellowship, not to help the individual. And a lot of AA, people are given jobs because the person needs it, even though the job will be done badly. And it's completely backwards if you're looking at it from a concepts um, perspective. And it's also incredibly important to have the job description very clearly laid out. What is your deliverable? What are you supposed to be producing? And to have a boundary there. A, a good example is in groups. Sometimes a speaker finder in an AA group Someone has chosen, can you find us people to speak for the next year? And then they choose whoever they want, usually their friends or the people that go to their most local groups. And then everyone is upset. And sometimes groups literally fold because 
The speakers week in, week out are so dreadful that people just stop going. I've, I saw a group reduce from 100 people a week to six people a week in six months and die. So when you give someone a role, you get to decide to what extent are you going to tell them not just the deliverable, but how you're going to deliver it. So in my home group, it's not just the deliverable. And the Friday group has speakers. Um, it's not just the deliverable, get an alcoholic to speak. No. It's we want someone who's completed the 12 steps, who is in service, who sponsors other people, who has gone through the steps as set out in the big book, and who, when presented one week in advance with the passage, which is one or two paragraphs, can speak solely on their experience of implementing the instructions set out in the passage for 10 minutes and not touch anything else. Can you do that? <laughs> now, because those very tight instructions, now apart from that, knock yourself out, you know, ask whoever you want. You're giving clear instructions. So the concepts tell us if you're going to give someone a job, define the deliverable and you get to define how much scope they have within that. If you don't define it, don't complain when it all falls apart. And then everyone is clear what, exactly what their scope of decision is. Um, there's a, an idea of responsibility and authority going together all through the service structure. My best examples of this are actually from my uh, personal life. Uh, I'm a translator. I take documents in other languages. I translate them into English. Now, to do a good job, I have to have authority and responsibility going together. This is concept 10, by the way. Authority and responsibility going together. Now, an example is I am responsible for the quality of the final translation. I get given absurd directives from clients about specific terminology, which, if I use that terminology, will make the will impair the text, will cause a problem with the text, with the final product. I have to have the power to decide as I see fit. If I'm going to be responsible for the output, you better give me the power to take the necessary actions. If you don't want to give me that power, I'm not responsible for the output. You're responsible for the output. Authority and responsibility. My mother is 90. She, her mind is going. I am responsible to make sure that she is looked after, she doesn't come to any harm. And so I have to have power over some of the decision-making about where she lives and how she's looked after. And it's a delicate balance. It's just like in, in concept, concept 7. Um, I have final authority and responsibility there. Now, by tradition, I want her to be on board with everything I do. And so we've negotiated everything very carefully. She's somewhere safe now. She's very looked after. She's comfortable with where she's living. It's taken a while. So there's a you know, traditional authority there. But the, the, the buck has to stop with me. Therefore, some power has to reside with me as well. And it's not unqualified power. This is an idea from concept 12 that I have no unqualified authority over anyone else. No one has unqualified authority over me. So my sponsor has no unqualified authority over me. He cannot issue me with a blank directive. When I suggest to a sponsee how that I think they should 
practice step nine with a particular amend, they're the ones who are responsible for the fallout if it goes wrong. So they're the ones who are responsible. They're the ones that have the power over the decision. All I can do is advise and say, but the responsibility is yours. So you must check this out with your higher power. And this notion of the ultimate responsibility behind everything in AA being with the higher power, that is implicit all through the concepts that in right of decision. You give someone a job, they have to act in accordance with their conscience. So no one is ordered to do anything. As Clancy says about sponsorship, you think it's a dictatorship? The dictatorship is over as soon as the sponsee says F you. It's over. So there's no unqualified authority. Um, there is, there is some, some more stuff, surely, on the... Um, uh, oh, just a, a, a couple of things. How I relate to AA as a whole. Um, concepts four and five. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Thank you. So, concept four. At all responsible levels, we ought to maintain a traditional right of participation, allowing a voting representation in reasonable proportion to the responsibility that each must discharge. So this, this idea is something I talked about in my home group. If you want to participate in the, in, in the group, you are allowed to. We get everyone who is affected to be part of the decision-making process. So you've got, if you've got responsibility in AA, you're given authority by being part of the decision-making process. This is part of the democratic principle in AA. Um, there is, there's a lot more on the concepts, but I want to talk about um, traditions in relationships. So this is going to be a slight, well, a radical change in direction. <laughs> so um, I've been with someone for 15 years. We've been married for two. Uh, we got married for basically for legal reasons. We were effectively married 15 years ago. We just didn't sign any piece of paper. My relationship is with someone who is not in AA and doesn't need to be in any kind of recovery. My relationships when I was drinking were crazy. Um, the relationship essentially involved me getting rid of my sense of inadequacy by finding someone that I thought was really special, and then I would give you my inadequate self, you would give me your wonderful self, and I would have to conceal from you the fact that I thought I was getting a far better deal out of this than you were. Having suppressed that guilt, I would then see the guilt in you, and after the honeymoon period would wear off, I would start to see all the things wrong with you, because no one was special enough to make me feel special, because everything would just dribble out of the bottom. Just disaster. You'd pour in love at the top and just, there's nothing left. Half an hour later, it's gone. Like a, a, a more, more, more. Nothing ever worked. Um, this idea I had when I was drinking and in early recovery, early being first 10 years, <laughs> my, no, that's the, the I had a sponsor that said, you know, it's the first 20 years which are the worst. Um, gets significantly easier after that point. But that was what my relationships were like. It was about getting two broken people together and thinking you make one whole person out of the two broken parts. Um, 
So what I'm going to say about the traditions in relationships, it's how I operate in my marriage to Jonathan. Um, and it starts, funnily enough, with Tradition 7. I have to be fully self-supporting through my own contributions. That's not just financially. That's in other senses as well. I need to be okay before I'm in the relationship. I need to have something to offer. I need to have my work life sorted out. I need to have some kind of occupation. I need an income. I need stability. Uh, this notion in concept 12 of financial prudence, one year's operating expenses in the bank. How many people have that? Um, <laughs> stability, so that I don't have any reliance on a single other human being. So what I'm bringing to the relationship is abundance. And if, I'm, if what I'm bringing to the relationship is abundance, you know what? People talk about having a broken picker. I didn't need to worry about my picker. I was starting to attract different people because I was no longer nuts and broken and inadequate and a sucking vortex of need. <laughs> you solve the basic problem, which is the sense of separation from God. P.S. You're not separate from God. You just think you are. You've got a paper bag on your head. The sun is still shining but you're too frightened to take the paper bag off because it'll prove you were wrong the whole time. Anyway, back to the topic. <laughs> I need to be fine without the relationship before I'm even allowed to go on a date. If you're not fine being on your own, don't even think about it. Just get a, you know, that thing, get a goldfish, see if it survives. Um, common welfare coming first. So the point about the relationship, someone sent us, I think it was a, it was a car, it was a wedding anniversary or a, you know, having met anniversary or whatever it was, but it was a picture of a rowing boat. And in the rowing boat, there were just two, two Labradors just sitting in the, in the prow of the boat, just gently floating down the stream. Um, the relationship is the boat. The, the relationship is the thing which enables us to be who we are and get done what we need to get done. The, it's the vessel which carries us through life. It's there to give us a greater strength. I couldn't do what I do in AA and in my life outside if I didn't have that strength at home. But the strength doesn't come from him. It comes from this vessel which we've created together. This sense of something greater, the spiritual entity like the home group is more than the sum of its parts. The relationship needs to be more than the sum of its parts. And it's the relationship which is the vessel for God's love, which is God is the source. Jonathan is not the source. We both contribute to the whole. We create the vessel. That's what carries us through, which means that common welfare comes first, just as it does with the AA group. Um, I got sued about 13 years ago for illegal downloads of music and uh, feature films that Jonathan had made using his computer on my internet connection. And because my name is on the internet connection, I was the one that was sued. And we, dis we worked out that if his computer was seized, he could be sued for, I think it was like 500 pounds per title and there were hundreds and hundreds of titles and it would have just wiped me out completely. It, it was at a time that um, lots of firms were going, up, going around buying up copyright in order to then 
hire a law firm to entrap people and then sue them, in basically just to make money. So it wasn't even the people that made the films and produced the music. It was, uh, it was these firms set up purely to sue people. It was a very nasty period. Anyway, um, so, you know, what do you do? Well, I went to my Al-Anon meeting. <laughs> and I got back. I was still totally freaked out. And I went to think it through in my room on my own. <laughs> and I realized that Jonathan was in the other room thinking, oh, my God, I've ruined everything. And I opened my Al-Anon book. And I read a line. I don't know what I read. It doesn't matter because the act of opening the book opened me up to a higher power who then said, your other half is suffering in the other room. And I went into the other room and I put my arms around him and said, whatever happens with this, if we lose everything, it will not affect this relationship or how much I care for you. Do not worry for one moment about that. And we just stayed there for about an hour. Nothing matters but unity, and everything else flows from that. The one thing which will damage unity in a relationship is criticism. And what I've learned from the big book is that, and this is, this is an idea in Tradition 4 as well, that I have my own private domain. I have my own character defects. He has his own private domain. He has his own character defects. There are a few things in the common ground which really matter and where I get to make a polite request. I figure I have like a couple of vouchers a year to make a polite request. I save them up. I wait until it's important like, you know, he's always late for everything and I, I, I use it, I use my voucher whenever we're going to an airport, I pull rank and say like, we're gonna leave at this time. Or please, we, may we leave at this time. Uh, but it is not for me to criticize or to carp or to insist that he change for me to be okay. Whatever he is willing to bring to the relationship is good enough for me. There, were two year, there was a two-year period when he was very, very preoccupied with some work stuff, which he didn't talk about, but it was going on. He was just not available for two years. He barely had anything to offer. But I was committed to the relationship, so I waited, and eventually he was present again. I don't get to demand anything from him. I get to occasionally ask, and the funny thing is, he is naturally like this. He naturally implements all of the principles in the traditions. I've had to teach him just a couple, but. <laughs> He's a natural. I needed to be trained. Um, but the point is, I don't get to criticize. Um, one of the interesting things about the concepts as well is you find the right person for the job and then that thing gets delegated to them. They have responsibility. I look after the finances. I look after the household. He looks after... I didn't realize what he was doing for the relationship for the whole time. You know, most people I know in relationships think they are doing 80% and the other person is doing 20%. Yeah, I look after the finances. Yeah, I look after the house but he is the one that provides most of the psychological, spiritual stability. 
I had no idea until we were together for seven or eight years that that was his contribution. I couldn't see it, but it was there. But anyway, one day I was doing, I was washing the dishes, and of course it was me washing the dishes because I'm the only one that washes the dishes. <laughs> so I was washing the dishes, and I started to wash them loudly in order to, who needs words when you have noises? Sulking, scowling, sighing, clattering, slamming. It's a whole language. And he clearly wasn't picking up on the message that it was his turn. He really needed to buck up his ideas. So I think I said, I can't remember what I said, but it was something to the effect of, if you did the washing up once in a while, it wouldn't hurt any. He looked at me, turned white, left the room. I knew I was in serious trouble. <laughs> 10 minutes later, he came back in and he said, I have never, ever criticized you. I could make a list as well. <laughs> of course, their list would be things that you think are perfectly reasonable. <laughs> so I get to, this is tradition 10, I get to have no opinion on outside issues. Outside issues are his character defects. So, our deal is we never, ever criticize each other, but we have the occasional voucher that we can redeem. We've got a cat that spends a lot of time with us, and he's, he admits that he is um, irrationally anxious for her safety and welfare. When I was 10, I was living in France, I was living in a tower block in Paris, and um, I was told by the family I was living with, my parents were always sending me to live with other families. Um, this was good, by the way. This was not, this was not an abuse. This was relief for me. But anyway, they said, you must be really, really careful. This family in France, you must be really, really careful about the cat. If you leave the door open to your room and the window is open, she'll fall out. And I was careless one day and she fell out. We have a cat that visits, visits us. Uh, Jonathan does know this story, and this story, but he, I tried to tell it to him a second time. I referred to it a second time once, and he didn't want to hear it a second time. Once was enough. The cat lived, but it needed an operation, blah, blah, blah. And I did, years later, I made amends and wrote an eye-watering check to a cat charity. But anyway, <laughs> but the real amend, the real amend Oh, by the way, when I did that, cats had been really wary of me for a very long... Like, there's some memo went round. <laughs> cats did not like me. I wrote the check. The attitude of cats towards me changed. I can't explain that stuff, but it happened. Anyway, the kitten visits us. Um, she's adopted us. She, she, while I'm away, she's staying overnight. How are we going to deal with that when I get back? I don't know, but anyway... Maybe there'll be a polite request at some point. Um, but he's irrationally anxious about the cat's welfare. And so he's insistent that all the windows be shut with only like a, a one or two centimeter gap. I mean, she couldn't get through a larger gap, but he wants it down to one centimeter. It's irrational, but he's asking, so it's okay. 
Because it's him asking, the answer is yes. Whatever he asks, the answer is yes. If he were the sort of person who would, who would ask me things that my conscience or morality would prompt me to say no to, I'm in the wrong relationship anyway. The point is picking someone who whatever they ask, it's going to be fine because you've picked the right person. How do you pick the right person? You be the, you be the thing that you would like to meet. Um, what else? Uh, yeah, so there's no trespassing into the other person's domain. It's tradition four um, about autonomy except in as far, you know, each person in the relationship is autonomous except in as far as it affects the other person. Uh, or the relationship as a whole, and Tradition 10, no opinion on outside issues. It means um, I will never look at his phone, he will never look at my phone, I never look at his computer, he never looks at, his com uh, he never looks at my computer. Um, if he doesn't want to talk about something from his past, I don't get to ask. If he has areas that he is uncomfortable to talk about, I don't get to pry or poke or prod or shame him in front of other people for having these dark areas that he won't talk about. To allow someone the dignity of being a broken person, as we all are one way or another, at least on the material level, we're not broken on a spiritual level, but there is strangeness at the material level. To allow someone the dignity of being a broken person without the feeling that they're being stared at and judged. So that notion of modesty and privacy is so important. He's let me be broken, which has allowed me to change over the years without any pressure at all. And this works both ways. Um, Tradition five, and tradition five and tradition six go very closely together. So tradition five is all about primary purpose. Tradition six is all about not getting distracted by other stuff. And whenever either of us, it's usually me, starts to get distracted by money or by property or by worldly worries or by work things or by anything else, and Jonathan is the one who practices tradition five and six better than me. I think he sees it as his job to raise me to a higher level where it's our unity, it's our oneness is the only thing which is real. Anything, he practices a principle from A Course in Miracles. He's so contemptuous of A Course in Miracles. But he practices its fundamental principle better than anyone I know, which is nothing real can be destroyed. If it can be destroyed, it's not real. It's not content, it's form. And it's our job in the relationship to, to constantly keep coming back to that level. The one thing that matters is our connectedness, our togetherness. Nothing else is of significance. Everything else is subsidiary to that and needs to be dealt with. But it's subsidiary to that. And part of that is we don't inject ill temper into the relationship, even ill temper about, which is not directed at the other person. Two examples where, again, the, the best examples of practicing the traditions 
obviously come from someone who is not in recovery. <laughs> the way he does this with me, a couple of things that he does, uh, there was a very difficult situation earlier this year where my mother was very ill. She was in hospital. We didn't know if she was dying. We didn't know what she had. The doctors were confused. There were all sorts of possibilities. Everything was being scanned and prodded and extracted and tested and blah, blah, blah. I still had my job. I still had all of my AA stuff. Uh, I was up at 5 in the morning. I didn't get to bed till 11. I was busy the whole time. And at one point, um, I allowed myself to, to vent some ill temper about the situation with a little note of self-pity in it. It was about 10 seconds. And it wasn't even directed at him. There was no accusation aimed at him. And he said, that needs to stop. This was after the first venting. This was not after six months of venting. This, was, this is called nipping it in the bud. That needs to stop. The space that we've created has no space for me to deliberately introduce ill temper, negativity. It means I'm allowed to feel whatever I'm feeling, but I'm not allowed to justify it. Uh, I got very upset a few weeks ago about some uh, environmental stuff, and I was just, I just, once every three years I have a major freak out. It was my major freak out. There was one due. It lasted about 10 minutes. He let the storm blow itself out. He did not indulge it for one moment, and he said, So, what's your action plan then? comes back to the primary purpose. We're there to contribute to each other, to the relationship and to the world around us. There is no time for self-indulgence. I asked him once, he's in a very prominent position in his work life, so obviously I can't tell you what he does, but he's in a very prominent position, pot shots are taken at him politically and in all sorts of other arenas. I said, how do you handle it when people are resentful towards you? And he said, first of all, so he had an answer already. There was just, it was just there. He pressed the button, accessed it. First of all, they need, uh, first of all, I'm embarrassed for them because it's so childish. Secondly, they need to get over it because it gets in the way. So we, I'm not allowed to indulge any resentment within the household, within the family a little family unit of him, me, and the cat. Because he's in touch with this spiritual truth that we are okay, and our primary purpose is to maintain this unity and this union. And when I've allowed myself, resentment is permitted, by the way. It doesn't happen to you. Page 66 of the big book, it says, to the extent that we permit these resentments. No one's forcing me to resent. I'm resenting because I've chosen to. Um, when I've resented and I've said unkind things to people, his response is, that's not who you are, and that needs to stop as well, because we are loving people. 
So let's act like loving people. You're being someone else. You're not being the person that belongs in this relationship. Um, I have periods of darkness. I came into AA mentally ill. Those periods of darkness have periodically recurred. And I have drawn into my own nightmares illusions about Jonathan. I went to Jim Willis, who is my sponsor's spiritual advisor, got sober in 1957, still alive. I went to him a few years ago and told him about the darkness in my mind about Jonathan. And he said, whatever you do, you have no right to bring that into the relationship and then get him to deal with it. You deal with it somewhere else. I dealt with that darkness somewhere else without bringing it into the relationship. And you know, tornadoes aren't actually made of anything. Just air moving very, very quickly. That's what it was. It was an emotional tornado. I needed to keep that away and deal with it elsewhere. And when the energy was taken out of it, there was no truth to any of it. If I hadn't had that advice from Jim, and Jim is someone, as is my sponsor, who is very keen on the idea that there are 12 steps, there are 12 traditions, and there are 12 concepts. Each of them contains not one principle, but multiple principles. I have not stopped studying the traditions and the concepts over the last, uh, well, particularly the last 10, 15 years. I've been reading some stuff by Dennis F., an AA member who started a, was a member of a group in LA, which is still going, called the 12 and 12 and 12, where they go through the steps, the traditions, and the concepts. His materials are amazing. I was rereading this, rereading them this summer, partly in preparation for this, thinking it's like I've never read it before. The depth in there is incredible. There is no limit to what can be learned in AA. Don't sell yourself short by thinking that when you've got to the end of step nine and you're still not fixed, AA has nothing else to offer. It has a lot else to offer. And one thing, I'm gonna finish on this. Jim says that um, of all there is to learn, imagine one of those globes in an old office, those globes you spin round. In his 62 years in AA, it's like he's scratched the top layer of varnish off that globe and everything else is still waiting to be discovered. And I hope I always retain that perspective. Thanks for listening.